At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let's pay careful attention now to God's Word. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us here this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage we read from the first chapter of the Song of Solomon. And with God's help this morning, we'll be focusing our attention upon verse 3. Tonight, God willing, we'll be taking a closer look at verse 2. But this morning, we consider verse 3. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Now, I suppose before we begin to consider any passage from the Song of Solomon, it is helpful to point out by way of introduction that this book has been interpreted in a variety of different ways, especially in recent generations within our own Reformed church community. There are many who would read this book and think that it's a literal love story between King Solomon, the king of Israel, and one of his 1,000 wives. And of those who think that, some of them would say that uh, this is the sort of book that gives us a picture as to what marital love and romance should be. Here's Solomon with one of his 1,000 wives. Here's the picture of biblical romance. Uh, Some would even take it so far as to say that we should read through this uh, book and find insight for modern-day dating and courtship principles from Solomon and his 1,000 wives. Well, that's not the historic uh, reform perspective here, and I don't think that's the biblical one, nor is that what we're going to be operating under in our sermons today. Um, and, and there are a number of reasons why we take this book as a figurative portrayal of, of Jehovah and His people, and if we can translate that into our New Testament context, Christ and His church. There's a reason we take it figuratively. There's a reason we take it metaphorically. Uh, You know the difference between a metaphor and a simile. A simile would say, your name is like 
ointment poured forth. A metaphor would say your name is ointment poured forth, but we understand when we see a metaphor that yes, it's saying your name is ointment poured forth, but really, even though it says is, it means it's like this. It means that there's a figurative imagery here, not a literal statement. And there, there are a number of reasons why, uh, Just I'll just rattle off a few of these, uh, why we take this book in that figurative spiritual manner. The first, as I already alluded to, is that Solomon's marital life was an idolatrous, polygamous train wreck. If, if there's anyone in the Bible that we would not want to take marital advice from, it's Solomon. Uh, so that, right off the bat, if, if we, we need to read our historical books of Scripture and understand, for instance, Nehemiah's commentary on, on Solomon's love life. Secondly, Throughout this book, you'll notice that whenever there's a conflict between the bride and her beloved, it's always her fault. Never is it the man's fault throughout the entire book. And I think without saying much more, we can see that's clearly not literally the case in, in, in a real-life situation. Um, thirdly, there's a romantic plurality throughout this book. A romantic plurality. In other words... The bride's goal is not simply to enjoy intimate communion with her beloved, but to join other women in this communion of love. You see one example, again we're trying to be brief here, notice verse 4, and by the way you'll see in your pew Bible there are these um, things that are inserted into the text that are not in the Hebrew. They're trying to say, well this is this person talking and this is that person talking. Uh, That's not in the Hebrew. You can for the most part, just disregard that. Uh, Verse 4, she says, Draw me away, we will run after you. Draw me away, we will run after you. And then the king has brought me into his chambers, we will be glad and rejoice in you, we will remember your love more than wine. So verse 2, she says, your love is better than wine. Now, she's saying, you know, draw me and we together, corporately, collectively, a plurality of lovers will run after you. Uh, Verse 3, therefore the virgins, plural, love you. I go into the chambers, but we will be glad and rejoice and remember your love more than wine. So, pretty much everything that's said of her relationship to the bridegroom is also said of these other lovers, these other virgins, these other women that she's inviting to enjoy this relationship. And of course, we see the symbolic imagery that Christ has a relationship with me as a believer, but that extends to other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. There's a unity and a collective unity within our relationship to God. We have an individual relationship to Him through Christ, and we have that collective relationship as the church. So again, that romantic plurality is not going to work too well in common practice today. Uh, In addition, the fact is, we must ask, and I've asked this of some fairly uh, well-respected people, I won't mention their names, who take a different view, uh, what's the purpose of this book? What's the purpose? If it's not Christ in the church, what's the purpose What's the impact that it's having right now in your ministry and how, how is it dynamically advancing the kingdom of God and sanctifying the people of God and the truth? And the fact is, you, you rarely get much of an answer to that. Most people just 
ignore this book. Whereas in the past, this was at the heart of Christian piety from, uh, throughout many and most ages of the church because it describes an intimate level of communion with Christ that, that is unique in a way to this book. It's alluded to in other places. We see in Psalm 45 that Christ is the bridegroom and He's wedded to His, his bride, the church. You can see this entire picture in Psalm 45. Jesus speaks of Himself as the bridegroom with the ten virgins. And the book of Revelation continually draws on this imagery. As do the Old Testament prophets again and again, like for instance Hosea with the relationship between the Lord and His bride, His people. So this is, this is pictured elsewhere, but it's never brought to its fullest crescendo anywhere other than in this book. And so if we're to have a, an abundant, robust relationship with Christ as our bridegroom and love Him and have an intimate fellowship with Him, this is a book we need. But if you take that interpretation out, it leaves a vacuum that... Really, I'm, I'm not sure how else that vacuum would be filled. And, and there are usually crickets in the background when you ask that question. In addition, the names of the characters in this book are clearly symbolic in that they have the same name. Solomon and Shulamit, which is just the female form of Solomon, have the same exact name. So right off the bat, I mean, unless you know, somebody just married somebody with the same name, very uncommon, probably uncommon in Solomon's case, although he had a better chance at it because he had a thousand wives. But the fact is, he is the, the prince of peace, Shalom, Solomon. A- and in him and through this relationship with him, we have Shulamit, uh, the church who is given peace with God through Christ. So they have the same name. It's clearly a, a part and counterpart relationship in this imagery. Um, So much more could be said. Those are some reasons why we take it in the way we do. But with that said, let me ask you a very practical question. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ? I'm not asking if you believe in Him. And there may be various degrees of that. Believing He existed believing certain things the Bible says about Him, believing everything the Bible says about Him and putting your trust in Him as your only hope of peace with God through His death on the cross, His resurrection, His perfect life of obedience even unto the death of the cross. But I'm not even asking that, whether you believe in Him. I'm saying, do you love Him? This is the question that Jesus brought to Peter at the end of John's Gospel. Simon do you love me? Or as it says famously in the King James, lovest thou me? Asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love Jesus Christ? 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul pronounces a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. So this is the most practical question that you could possibly ask both for now and for eternity. Do you love Christ? Not just I believe in Him, trust Him. Oh, He's a means to an end. Punch that ticket to heaven. Do you love Him? Can you say of Him, as is said in this book, I am my beloved's and He is mine. I am my beloved's and He 
is mine. Is he yours? Do you rejoice over that? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you love him, the question then is why? Why do you love Christ? Why does the true Christian love Christ? Why do we get together as we are this evening and come around the feast of love, the Lord's table, to celebrate his death and and to commune together in a fellowship of love with Him. Why do we love Him? Why does a true Christian love Christ? And this is a theme throughout the Song of Solomon. One of the many significant themes. For instance, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find My beloved, that you tell Him, I am lovesick. She desires to sense the love of her bridegroom. And we can relate to that as Christians when we find ourselves cold and dry in our relationship with God and we desire to to sense His love, to, to be able to feel and feel assurance of His love through Jesus Christ. She's lovesick. And they ask her, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? In other words, you're lovesick, but why do you love him? And in a sense, that's the key to getting out of that coldness and dryness in our relationship with Christ is to be asked this question, well, why do you sense that dissatisfaction in your relationship with Jesus? Why? Your prayer life isn't what you would want it to be. Your study of the Scriptures, you you come to church, you come to the Lord's table, you're dissatisfied, you don't sense that peace and that joy that you desire. And the, the daughters of Jerusalem would say, well, remind yourself who He is. Who and what He is. And another way to say that is that every true Christian loves Christ because of His name. Because of His name. Because of who and what He is. And the Shulamite here in in chapter 5 goes on to answer the question from those daughters of Jerusalem and she begins to explain who and what He is. At the climax, at the end, yes, He is altogether lovely. So she's meditating upon who and what He is. In other words, His name. And you can see that in our text in verse 3. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. Now throughout the Bible, God's people, true believers are presented as virgins. We could look at that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the first few verses. You see it in the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus is the Lamb with His flock. And it says that they're virgins and they follow Him wherever He goes. You can see that in Jesus' parable of the ten virgins who are waiting for the return of Christ, the bridegroom. I mean, that's, that's basic biblical imagery here. Why do true Christians love Christ? Because of His name. Because of who and what He is. It is unto them as a fragrant ointment poured forth. They desire it. They find it pleasant. They find it lovely. Indeed, altogether lovely. And the Scriptures are replete with examples of true Christians loving the Lord because of His name. 
Psalm 56, verse 6. Prophesying here of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the New Testament. says, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant, even them will I bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Notice, who join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord. God's people love Him because they love His name. They love who and what He is. Psalm 5, verse 11. Another example. Just give you several examples. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in You. It goes on then, let those also who love Your name be joyful in You. Psalm 69, verse 36. Just listen to this. Also the descendants of His servants shall inherit it. That's the children of believers. And those who love His name shall dwell in it. That is the city of God. Those who love His name. Then Psalm 119, verse 132. Look upon Me and be merciful to Me as your custom is toward those who love your name. So, His name is as ointment poured forth and therefore the virgins, His people, love Him because of His name. Because of who and what He is. And when we say God's name, what do we mean? We mean His revealed character. We mean His revealed character. Our catechism says what is God? Telling us of the various attributes of God that He's revealed in the Scriptures. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's describing who God is. But the Bible describes God's attributes uh, in ways that are not quite as systematic, but but, uh, perhaps even more, certainly more powerful. Exodus chapter 34. where Moses has asked to see God's glory. Show me your glory. And God shows him his glory by declaring his name. And notice what it means for the Lord to declare his name. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. That is Jehovah or Yahweh. The Lord. The Lord God. Merciful and gracious long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The name of God. And notice there, it's not just certain names like Jehovah or you know, you think of all the various other names uh, that well, we'll look at some of those later, but just, just think of Jehovah. It's not just that name, the great I am, the self-existent, all-sufficient, transcendent, eternal God. That's not the only example of his name. He has titles. He's given the title God. He's given the title King of Kings, Lord of Lords. 
Also, his attributes. Notice when he declared his name, he said merciful, gracious, just, and holy. All these different attributes constitute the name, the revealed character of God. And also, his ordinances, as I mentioned earlier in the service. In baptism, he places his triune name upon the person who's being baptized. Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the, be- the priestly benediction, God's name is placed on His people and His temple or place of worship is called the place where He sets His name. In addition, His Word itself is the revelation of His character. Every single verse in the Bible in some way contributes to our knowledge of who God is. So, for instance, Psalm 138 says that God has exalted His Word far above all His name. Exalted His Word far above all His name. All His name. In other words, His name is a broader category of which His Word is but one uh, element. God's name is all the ways He reveals Himself, but among all the ways He reveals His character, He has exalted the place of His Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so His Word is interchangeable in many cases. Jesus' high priestly prayer, for instance, John 17, Word and name are virtually interchangeable there. And finally, His works. God's works reveal His name. If I were to say to you the name uh, Michael Jordan, you would immediately think of his accomplishments, his achievements. Uh, He has made a name for himself. He has a brand name that carries weight with him. We could think of many other people that carry either a good or a bad reputation depending on their works, their exploits, their achievements, or lack thereof. God's name is his revealed character through his works, in other words, his reputation. So when we say Christ's people love him because of his name, they're thinking about the, his name, his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his word, and his works. Everything you could possibly think about about Jesus, these are the things that stir up their heart of love for Christ. And this revelation of his name is compared to the outpouring of fragrant ointment. The end of verse 2, your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Now what is being spoken of here? Well, if we understand it within the context of Old Testament worship, then we would understand that this reference to the pouring out of fragrant ointment or anointing oil comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 30 and verse 22 and following. I'll just read you a few of the uh, excerpts from this. The Lord is here speaking to Moses. He says also, verse 23, "...take for yourself quality spices." 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. 
and you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. So this is fragrant oil, anointing oil that's going to be poured out ceremonially. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony. The table and all its utensils, the lampstand, its utensils, the altar of incense, so on and so forth. And they, they would anoint the priest. Uh, we know that they anointed kings. They anointed prophets when they were sent into the ministry. So this is the holy anointing oil, the fragrant ointment that would be poured out in connection with God raising up, in this case, priests to serve in his house. And he, he goes on, uh, verse 30, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition it is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. So it's not for ordinary pouring out. This is special. It's unique. It's got a copyright. You can't try to come up with an off-brand version of it. It is the holy, fragrant anointing oil of God. And this, of course, reminds us, getting back to our text, that our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Anointed One. That's what the name Christ or Messiah actually means. The Anointed One. And in Psalm 45, which is really a, basically the song of Solomon turned into a praise song, uh, you, you have this uh, statement, verse 2, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And verse 7, Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So, and all of His garments, it says, are perfumed with scented, with myrrh and aloes and cassia, all those things from the holy, fragrant, anointing oil. So this is speaking of Christ. God's people love Him because of His name. And His name, as it were, brings out His identity as their anointed one, their prophet who reveals to them the Word of God, answers all the most important questions so that they can know without a shadow of a doubt that their sins are forgiven and that they will spend eternity with God so that they can know what is right and what is wrong and how to live a godly life. They're anointed prophet. They love him for that. They read the Bible to make use of that as he declares it in every verse. They love Christ because he is their priest who has offered Himself as a sacrifice to take away the wrath of God, take away their sin, and to reconcile them to God, and one who intercedes for them as a priestly mediator day in and day out so that they might be blessed. And they rejoice in Him as their King. Their King who is greater than Solomon. Their anointed King who loves them, 
who defends them, protects them, who enables them to conquer the sin in their lives, and who works all things together for their good as the sovereign king over all the universe. They love Christ because His name, His his position as the anointed one is that fragrant ointment. In fact, God has given Him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, not just the name Jesus, but at the name of Jesus, when you contemplate the various names and titles of Jesus, the morning star, uh, the, the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world, the good shepherd, the great high priest, we could go on and on, his names, his titles, his attributes, he's meek and lowly of heart, his ordinances, his word, his works, you contemplate these things and you're stirred up in love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the, the anointed one here is anointed with the Holy Spirit. We understand that that Old Testament anointing oil was simply pointing forward to the reality that Christ the Messiah would come having been anointed with the Holy Spirit. So when He comes to be baptized by John, God speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here He is at age 30 beginning His ministry, being baptized by John who was the son of a priest. And here our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, has the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove and rest upon Him. Uh, Isaiah 61, 1-3 says that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed the Messiah. So it's not just a fragrant ointment. It's the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But the beauty of it is the Holy Spirit's poured out upon Him so that it might be poured out upon us as His people. Jesus did not receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit merely for Himself. He received the outpouring of that fragrant ointment of the Holy Spirit upon Himself so that as it falls upon the head and King, as it falls upon the head, it would flow down to the members. And at the end of the service, we're going to be singing Psalm 133, which depicts this figurative outpouring upon the high priest which points to the Spirit poured on Christ and on His people. It says that the unity of the church, verse 2, is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. We could say the beard of Christ who is greater than Aaron, our great high priest. Running down on the edge of His garments It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. Christ receives the Spirit who is then poured out upon the body of Christ. And you notice on the day of Pentecost we're told that the church would be baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.5 And then in Acts chapter 2 you find Peter quoting Joel chapter 2 saying that when God promised to pour out His Holy Spirit, this is the fulfillment of that Spirit baptism. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As it were, an outpouring of the name of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. The fragrant ointment of the Spirit of gladness and joy and of salvation and power. 
that this outpouring, Peter says, this thing that is poured out here today at Pentecost, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is fulfilled in your midst. And my friends, in the New Testament, this spiritual outpouring upon God's people who then become His anointed ones through Christ, this spiritual outpouring in connection with God's name is symbolized in the ordinance of Christian baptism. That's the whole point of Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Jesus says, I'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then Acts 2, He pours out His Holy Spirit upon His people. It's been poured out on Christ and now it falls on the body of Christ. The Spirit baptism, the spiritual anointing or outpouring upon the people of God in connection with His name. And we know, as I've said already, Matthew 28, 19 says that you're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so Christian baptism is, as it were, this symbol of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the outpouring of the name of God. Because His name is as that spiritual fragrant oil poured forth. His name and His Spirit are placed upon the people of God. And that means if you're baptized, that whatever's happening in your life, in one sense, whether you're a believer or not, if, if you've been baptized, you have taken, you bear the name of God. You bear that name. Are you representing that name? Are you putting your trust in that name? Are you putting your trust in Christ by His Spirit to save you from your sins? Are you living in accordance with the name that's been put on you? And are you experiencing the true reality of that spiritual cleansing and outpouring? Whether you are or not, uh, if you're not, then you're actually taking or bearing the name of God in vain. In the Ten Commandments, when it says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, that word can be translated to bear or to wear. It includes our words, but it also includes our actions. Are we misrepresenting God? Are we taking something on us as an outward sign and symbol, but not living in accordance with it? Are we bearing His name in vain and misrepresenting the name of God? And if He has put His name upon you and you are a believer, what a beautiful picture that is for you. What an encouragement for you here this morning to know that God has not merely proclaimed the Gospel to you in His Word, but that He gives you a sign and seal, a confirmation, a visible token that His covenant promises are rock solid. He puts His name on you as if He's signing a covenant or a contract, committing Himself to save all who call upon His name. You call upon My name, My name is good for it. You shall be saved. God puts His name upon His ordinances. It's His seal. It's His imprimatur. It proves, it demonstrates His unchanging faithfulness. And so if you have His name upon you through baptism, That's either a source of assurance that God absolutely will be gracious to you in and through the Lord Jesus Christ whom you have believed and whom you serve. 
But if you've been baptized and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that equally gives you utter assurance at this moment that as sure as His name is Jehovah, He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon their children, even to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him. So there's assurance, there's confirmation either way that the question is, have you believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you living in such a way that is a fruit or an evidence of that true faith? That's the question that baptism poses to us every time it's administered, every time we see it take place in this church, we ought to be asking and examining ourselves. Uh, Isaiah 44 verse 5, one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. When somebody comes to the place of making a profession of faith and comes to be baptized, that is what they are doing. They are saying, I am the Lord's. They are calling themselves by the name of the God of Jacob. Why the God of Jacob? Well, it could have said the God of Israel. Israel's the name God gave to Jacob in his later, more spiritually mature years when he prevailed with God in prayer. But it doesn't say that. It says, calls himself by the God of Jacob. That's the name that Jacob had that means deceiver, uh, heel grabber. It reflects the spiritual immaturity, the sinfulness of Jacob. When you come to be baptized and profess your faith, you're taking hold of a merciful and gracious God who says, I won't just be the God of the Israels and the Abrahams, but I will be a God unto even the Jacobs at their lowest point if they call upon my name. You're writing, as it were, with your hand, the Lord's. And you're naming yourself by the name of Israel. You're joining God's covenant people. What, you know, many different churches, denominations, but you're, you're joining a faithful Bible-believing church and you're remaining faithful to the Lord, serving and being accountable in that part of God's kingdom. This is what baptism points to. And then, of course, if you belong to the Lord, your children belong to the Lord as well. And someone who professes their faith not only dedicates themselves to the service of the Lord, but they recognize that my child belongs to the Lord. That I have a duty to raise my child in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord. I am the Lord's, therefore my offspring, my children are the Lord's, and I'm going to devote them to the Lord and claim His covenant promises and teach them to call upon the name of the Lord. Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. As long as there's at least one believer in, in the relationship or with the parents, then we're told, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now they are holy. Some people say, well, in the Old Testament, children of Israel were set apart. There was circumcision. Children in the covenant community received the covenant sign and were regarded as holy back then. 
But Paul doesn't say that. He says, now. He says, but now. Here in the New Testament, if there's at least one believing parent, now they are holy. But now they are holy. They're not unclean. They're not on par with a heathen and a tax collector. They have privileges and opportunities and advantages and the name of God has been put upon them to reckon with. They need to reckon with it either in either direction, as we said, as a guarantee of God's covenant faithfulness to save every believer and damn every unbeliever. That is a big deal. They're holy. They're clean. They're clean and holy now, as Paul makes clear. And so this promise and this baptism is unto you and unto your children. And unto your children, as Peter makes clear on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 38 and 39. Now, more could be said. I have a lot more in my notes here. But before we conclude the sermon, I think it would be appropriate uh, for us to uncork this thing because we can't just leave God's name in the bottle. Uh, in order for this good ointment to give out a fragrant aroma, the aroma of Christ, it needs to be poured forth. So let's consider a couple of the names of God. Let's meditate. Let's, let's get this ointment and let's just fill the place, fill this room with the aroma of Christ. First, Jehovah Sidkenu. In Hebrew, the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. The Lord our righteousness. What does that mean to you? Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord our righteousness. What did that mean to Noah? For Noah, it meant that after he got off the ark, he sacrificed, made offerings to the Lord, and the Lord smelled the sweet aroma of those sacrifices pointing ahead to the work of Christ, and we're told that it was a soothing aroma. God is a holy and just God. He hates sin. He sends sinners to hell every single day. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to candy coat that. That's reality. He has a flaming white hot wrath against sin. Jesus Christ is our refuge and our strength. Jesus Christ has taken the Father's wrath the punishment that we deserved on the cross. He has risen again victoriously. He has perfectly obeyed God's law in every detail, every jot and tittle. And He offers Himself to us as our righteousness to be cleansed by Him, to be clothed in Him so that rather than God smelling your sin and mine, He will smell the soothing aroma Whatever wrath God has against sin, one whiff of the perfect righteousness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and it is a picture of this peace with God, the soothing aroma of the righteousness of Christ, such that we can be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Psalm 61 and verse 3 says that God gives us the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And he goes on to say that we are clothed in the garments of salvation. The Lord our righteousness. Secondly, Jehovah Kadesh. 
the Lord who sanctifies us. The Lord who sanctifies us. Leviticus 20 verses 7 and 8 gives us this beautiful name of the Lord that's placed upon us in our baptism as it were. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Is that the name of God that you need to be uncorked and poured out upon yourself here this morning? That God in Christ is the one who sanctifies you. He's the one who cleanses you from the defilement and the power and influence of sin. He enables you to overcome your sin and to be more holy and more like Him. This Spirit of Christ, this holy anointing oil as He comes upon you is like the Spirit who hovered over the waters on, uh, at, the, at the beginning of the creation. Genesis 1 verse 2. The Spirit of God hovered. And then what did He do? He began to separate and bring order to the chaos. He began to separate light from darkness, day from night, uh, the, the water under the earth or the, you know, the water under the horizon from the water in the atmosphere. He's separating. He's ordering. And we feel at times that our lives are undisciplined. Our lives are chaotic. We need help. We need strength. We need the Lord who sanctifies us. We need the Spirit of God to be poured out upon us that we may divide and separate and order and discipline our lives in such a way as to be more fruitful and more godly in our Christian life. This is how the Lord works. And this is what He does. He gives us a heart and a mind to be able to tell the difference between good and evil, between righteousness and unrighteousness, light and darkness, truth and error. First John says every believer has an anointing with this name, an anointing such that we can tell the difference, we can discern error and false teaching and believe and obey the truth of God. Finally, Jehovah Shema. This name is given to the Lord at the end of Ezekiel's prophecy. This is the name by which God's city, God's people, God's church will be called Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. Jesus says, baptize them in My name and surely I will be with you to the end of the age. There are many beautiful promises in the Scriptures. Listen to this one. Isaiah 43, verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God. I'm with you. I'm here with you. Wherever you go, I'll be there. God makes this promise to His people. Not only is He everywhere present, but He will be an ever-present help in times of trouble. The Lord is our refuge and strength. Psalm 46. And my friends, we don't need help in the past. We don't need help in the future. We need an ever-present help. What are the things you're going through right now? What are the struggles? What are the things that seem insurmountable, unsolvable, unendurable in your life right now 
Psalm 46, 1 and 2 says, The Lord is your refuge. He is your strength. He'll protect you from many things. And the things that He doesn't protect you from, He'll be with you and give you strength to endure them. An ever-present help in times of trouble. Jehovah Shammah. My friends, you can buy books on the names of God. There's, there's plenty more where that came from. But these are sufficient as we, as we meditate this morning upon His name. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks this morning that You have poured forth the fragrant ointment of the name of Christ. That You have shown Him to be our righteousness, our sanctification, and our ever-present help in times of trouble. We pray that we would love Him that we would rejoice in Him and that we would respond by living the life of a sanctified believer, that we would be virgins, not whoring with the world, but walking in paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.